Okay, so welcome to Healing the City podcast. Um, I'm Adrienne Crawford, and today I have a special guest, Ashley Cousineau. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here. So Ashley works here in Tucson as a lawyer. Um, and what court system do you work in? I work in the juvenile court system. So I work with children that are currently involved in uh, cases with the Department of Child Safety, um, also known as CPS more colloquially, and I represent them in foster care proceedings. Where did you go to get your undergrad, and did you know at that point that you wanted to go into law school? I actually didn't. I went to the University of Texas in Austin for my undergraduate. I originally started as a biochemistry major. Um, I in high school, I was very good at math and science. It came very naturally to me. I um, didn't ever think I'd be a lawyer. I was a shy person. I didn't uh, have a very outgoing personality. I kind of kept to myself, and I thought that being a scientist would fit my personality well, given that my giftings, um, or at least what I felt were my giftings, were math and science. I... When I started at the University of Texas, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't uh, follow Jesus. I grew up in a in a family that we were basically Christmas and Easter Christians. <laughs> we were Christians in really name only. Um, but as I got into college, I I found a group of uh, college students who were following Jesus and got to learn more about the gospel through there and. Uh, ended up committing myself to Christ at that point in my freshman year. And as I was going through my major at at the University of Texas, I was becoming increasingly restless, I think the best word to describe it. I was spending a lot of time in a laboratory in a basement on, you know, Friday nights, Thursday nights, friends were going out and having a good time and I was stuck in the lab. And I really kind of felt dead as far as uh, this potentially being my career choice. So in my second year of college, um, I was already into my upper level classes because I was um, one of the students in high school that did a ton of AP classes and got all of my electives out of the way pretty much coming into college. And I God spoke to me and basically said that this is not your path. You need to go a different path. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what I would do. And uh, one thing I had really enjoyed was learning foreign languages. I was studying German at the time. I had previously studied Spanish. And I really enjoyed that. And I didn't know what that would mean. So I uh, decided to drop out of my biochemistry major, which was a very scary conversation to have with my parents. They had, you know, wanted me to pursue this career because it would be turn out with a good job and uh, stability and security. And when I finally told them that this isn't what I wanted to do, they they were supportive. But, you know, my dad was asking, well, what are you going to do instead? What's your job going to be? And I didn't really know at the time. So it was really a leap of faith for me to kind of trust God to, for him to show me what path he was going to take me down. And I uh, explored teaching as a potential option, foreign language teaching. 
And that wasn't for me. I didn't have the gift of patience for that. So I then, uh, well, I studied abroad. I, I went to Argentina for six months in my last year of college um, in the fall semester. Um, and when I was there, I was living with a family and my host dad was an attorney. And I didn't really know much about attorneys. I had never really interacted with any lawyers. The only lawyers I had really known were people I saw on TV. And that didn't seem like me at all. And he represented a candidate for the mayoral election uh, in the city we were living in. It was actually during the election season. So it was really interesting to talk with him about his experience as an attorney and that lawyers can do different things besides being in court every day and arguing all the time. And that kind of got me thinking that maybe this could be something for me. So I decided when I got back that I would take the LSAT, which is basically the entrance exam for law school, and see where God took me. Um, I was provided with an opportunity after I graduated from law school to work at a law firm and work with lawyers every day and figure out if this was something I was interested in and started applying to law schools and ended up getting into law school after my year off. Awesome. That's great. And then um, I know you went to law school in Colorado. Um, And so when someone goes to law school, do they, are there, so like in medical school, there's like um, tracks, um, maybe not, you know, the four years of medical school are pretty standard, but then people go into their, you know, residency programs, you know, surgical or intern, blah, blah, blah. Is it similar with a law degree? Like, as you're studying, are you taking specific courses that might help determine what you're going to use your law degree with, or everyone gets the same education and then it kind of pans out after you graduate? Uh, With law school, there are certain core requirements that they expect of you, you know, Uh, property law, criminal law, uh, rules of evidence, the rules of procedure for the courts. There's certain basic requirements that everyone has to take. And then they offer several other areas. There's no specializations in law school. You don't get a specialized degree, typically, if you're just going for a regular JD, uh, Juris Doctor, which is the uh, degree you get when you graduate from law school. But it's certainly helpful to take classes in a particular area or field that you're interested in. I took several different classes in different areas to kind of narrow down what I wanted to do in my career, for my career. Yeah. So, um, and law school is three years or four? It's three years. Three years. Okay. And then when you graduated, um, you and Michael, were you married at this point? Yes. Mike, I actually met Michael once um, my, during my first year of law school after I moved to Colorado. He was in a graduate program for philosophy up at the University of Colorado. We met through the Graduate Christian Fellowship Group up there through InterVarsity. We got married after my second year of law school. Um, and then we were, um, then at the end of my third year, he was finishing up his program in philosophy, and I had just finished law school, and we were trying to decide where we were going to land. I, being a Texas girl, I'm not a fan of living in the snow. It was quite a rude awakening for me. Skiing was really fun, but I didn't get to do it as nearly nearly as much as I wanted to. So I was ready to move back to warmer climates. 
And that journey back to Tucson is actually, from what my understanding, is an interesting story. What um, brought you guys to the village in Tucson? So Michael went to the University of Arizona for his undergrad um, from 2005 to 2007. He and his roommate at the time, Ron Lehman, who was also a fellow villager, uh, they were looking for a church and they liked the village because it met in the evening and not many churches met in the evening and they were church shopping and going to other churches in the morning and uh, coming to the village every evening and they finally decided we like it at the village why do we go anywhere else so Michael um, really enjoyed his time at the village he moved to Colorado at, when he graduated in 2007 to pursue his graduate degree uh, but he always, I think the village played a big role in his life. And I know Eric and everyone here has walked alongside him through some tough times when he was finishing his undergrad. And our whole relationship, he had always told me about the great experiences he had had at the village. And I was always very intrigued. Um, I, we, I got to meet some of the villagers. They came to our wedding. And I knew that uh, Eric and Ron in particular had a very special place in his heart and I thought that maybe um, maybe moving back to Tucson would be a, a good thing for us to be part of the village even though in my field uh, moving to somewhere where you have no professional connections is a huge risk mm -hmm. but uh, we considered it we prayfully considered it and decided to do it um, you know I'm from Austin and I love Austin, but it's a growing city and it's getting to be too big for me. Michael's from California originally. We couldn't afford to live there with being a public servant. Um, and he was looking to be a teacher. So uh, we decided to move to Tucson. And yeah, pretty much everyone thought professionally I was losing my mind because I didn't know anyone at all. But um, we moved here. I took the bar exam here in Arizona. I passed it. Uh, praise God. Yay! <laughs> that is no small feat. No. <laughs> um, and I started just blindly emailing people, trying to establish connections to to get in somewhere um, in here in Tucson. And uh, one judge, um, her name's Terry Chandler. She's retired now, but she uh, replied back to me and said, "Hey, you know you." Uh, want to get into the family law juvenile law field i'm currently on the family law bench i'd be happy to have have you be a law clerk for me and help me out and kind of learn the system and meet some people so that was a really uh amazing opportunity she was very well connected in the community she had previously been on the juvenile court bench so she put in a very good word for me with um my job interviews because i knew um Throughout my law school experience, I took some classes and clinics, which are basically practical classes where you actually get to go and be a lawyer supervised by an actual lawyer. <laughs> um, and I knew that the field of juvenile law was what I was interested in. So she put in some good words for me. I ended up getting a job at the Arizona Attorney General's office representing the Department of Child Safety. I got that job in the beginning of 2013. Um, so, and is that job the same job that you're doing now or are they, or? It's not the same job. So I stayed at that job for a little over five years until April of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, in that job, I was representing the state of Arizona. 
uh, Department of Child Safety. Um, whenever they took custody of a child because of abuse or neglect, a court proceeding is initiated, and uh, I would represent them in those court proceedings. So can we stop for just one sec and break it down? And you can give me a real, you know, case with obviously um, respect for privacy or just a made up one for maybe someone that doesn't understand the court system and what that means. So a child, let's pretend or I'll let you explain. Yeah. Like give me walk me through like a specific um, story. Either it can be fictional or or true. It doesn't. Okay, um, I'll do a. A generalized account um, in juvenile law, our cases are confidential, so we're not allowed to disclose any um, identifiable information, but I'll, I'll describe a common scenario that unfortunately we see a lot. So let's say you have a small child, um, let's say you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, they're living at home with their mom and what's often a, a, a boyfriend, not necessarily their dad. Um, and let's say the mom and the da- the mom and the boyfriend get into a uh, altercation, a physical altercation in front of the kids. The cops are called. Um, the kids are present, um, and uh, one or both of the parties, uh, the mother or the boyfriend, are arrested. And that leaves the children without a legal caregiver. So the police call the Department of Child Safety. The Department of Child Safety comes out, takes custody of the kids. Ask mom to do a drug test. She does a drug test and say she's positive for methamphetamines. So she's also in, in, not only uh, using drugs, but also engaging in domestic violence in the presence of the children. And there's extensive research, and that could be a whole different podcast about um, the negative effects that domestic violence can have on very small children's brains and their development. So the state takes custody of them. They'll either first try to place them with a relative. Let's say their grandmother lives in town and she passes a background check and is willing to uh, follow all the rules that uh, DCS will put in place. Uh, They'll place the children with her. And to do that, they have to initiate a court proceeding because otherwise they can't just take children and uh, not have the legal authority to do that. They can do that in an emergency basis, but to keep them on an ongoing basis, they have to file a a court a petition with the court. So they file a petition with the court through the attorney general's office, which initiates a proceeding where um, the parents, uh, the biological parents, both have attorneys appointed to them. The child also has an attorney appointed to them. And they have court proceedings to determine where that child's going to live, what the visitation plan is going to be like for the parents and the child, and then uh, what services or counseling counseling classes etc is dcs going to ask the parents to do in order to reunite the family again in a way that's safe for the child um, and to help the family uh, move past this um their, their current struggles and so when you um how so when you get a case on your desk like that you're gonna be you know what, or at this previous job when you would receive those cases, would you would you be part of it until either the the parents were reunited with the child or until their rights were severed, or is it just in that initial hearing? Um, it uh, we would stay involved in the case. All all of the lawyers and all the players are involved with the case through its completion. So, a completion either means the parents complete all the tasks that are asked of them and they um, actually show a benefit from participating in those classes because unfortunately you get the people that 
go to class but don't really pay attention or just are just there to get the check mark. Um, and what the court is really looking for is that they are able to internalize what they've learned and ex- display a benefit. They've changed their behavior. They've gotten out of that bad relationship. They've gone to NA meetings. They've gone to rehab. They've uh, really did the work to turn their life around. Or um, alternatively, the court will give them uh, a certain period of time. Typically, it's about a year. Um, it can be less or more. But, you know, in my experience, it's typically been about a year to remedy the issues, to take care of the problems that started the case. Um, and if the parents haven't done that by about a year, they start looking at alternative options for what we call permanency for the child. So they're not in the system forever because there's also really there's a lot of evidence that shows that kids that linger in the system, there's very negative. It has very negative impacts for them throughout their life. So one of the permanent options could be by being uh, having the parents rights terminated and them being adopted by their family member or foster parent if there's no appropriate family member or a guardianship which doesn't terminate the parents rights but allows the caregiver to care for the child without being in the system any longer Um, and or um, for kids that are older that don't want to be adopted there's alternatives Um, there's independent living alternatives to help them kind of age out of foster care and be successful adults. Sure. So that sounds like a pretty emotional job, right? Because you've got these little kids who've been exposed to a lot and then, but you also have, as I can imagine, parents who have, there's a reason, hurting people hurt people, right? And so there's a reason that they're struggling and it's not just because they want to be bad parents, right? Like they obviously have stories. So can you talk a little bit about um, just your experiences and and your heart in caring for um, children and also like understanding the complexities of being an adult? Absolutely. I think a lot of the parents that we interact with in our system, they it's intergenerational trauma. You know, they were often um, the parents that we interact with. A lot of times they were exposed to abuse or neglect in their early years as well. Their families um, coming from broken families um, and um, having um, their own struggles. So it's definitely um, there's definitely a pattern. I think you you see it in almost every case that uh, it's very rare that uh, a parent hasn't really experienced any trauma, uh, has not experienced any childhood trauma. So that's really difficult to balance. And, um, you know, at, at this point in my career, I now represent children. So I represent the children in these proceedings. And um, if they're not able to articulate to me what they want out of the process, I act in a best interest capacity. Um, that's typically, as a general rule, five and under, can't really have a legal conversation about, they don't really understand what's going on. Right. So you um, you substitute your judgment for the child. But if the child's old enough to have a conversation and understand what happened to bring them into the foster care system and appreciate the the risks, I guess you could say, of maybe being returned to their parent before it's safe, uh, then I have to advocate for what they want. So um, typically kids, yeah, about general rule six or older, um, I act in a a expressed wishes capacity as their attorney. So 
Um, so for my younger clients, I have to balance, you know, it's always best for kids to be reunited if they're, with their parents if it's safe. And so I push at the beginning to offer a lot of support to their parents so that they can move through the system as quickly as they can because the longer, especially a younger child stays in foster care, the more, or with a relative, the more attached they get to that caregiver and the more detrimental or more difficult it is to break that bond and attachment to transfer it to someone else. So for little children, it's, I always try to advocate if they're going to go home, let's get everything in place and make it happen. But if not, we need to start looking at alternative options. So it's really hard to kind of, you understand that substance abuse takes a long time to overcome and sobriety is a journey and it's difficult. So I have to balance, you know, what's in my client's best interest. And you really, I have to put myself in the shoes of my client and them lingering in the system longer than they need to is usually more detrimental to them so um so it's hard it's definitely hard and I wish that there were more services available to parents I wish there was more help it's really hard to get into rehab for example an inpatient rehab most of the people we are working with are in poverty and so they rely on this the uh, access which is Medicaid here in Arizona to uh, pay for their services and they Access doesn't necessarily want to pay for the the most necessary treatment, which I think for a lot of people is rehab. So that makes it challenging as well, being in a system that's broken.